morning, I think, and, and I'm planning to, to, this will be my last morning, to talk about Jesus' unpredicated I ams. What does it mean, unpredicated? Drew, do you know what unpredicated means? Do you know what a predicate is? Okay, good, great. If I said I am tall, the word tall says something about who I am, my description of myself. That's a predicate. But if I just say I am, or if you say where are you, I am something, there's no predicate there. If I just say I am in the right context, in the right context, not every time, especially the context that Jesus uses it, he is saying something intrinsically about himself, who he is in himself, his very nature and his very character. Do we get that now? So when Jesus is speaking and we've gone through some of these I am statements, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Remember 826 of John. Before Abraham was, existed, what? I am. He is saying something about his very nature and character. Claiming in these statements that in fact, he is in some way, we don't get it at this point, in some way, he is identifying himself as the I am of the Old Testament, the Lord himself, correct? And because of this, you remember the response of the Pharisees was to do what they should have done given their theological understanding. They should have stoned him. He deserved to be stoned, Pam, because he was blaspheming. It was a heretical statement. It was undoing Israel's monotheism that they believed that God is just one. But it was a Unitarian monotheism, remember? Just one person, one in his essential being, one. But Christianity is not a Unitarian monotheism, and Jesus was clarifying this. He was saying effectively what you understand as monotheism and what has been supposedly supposedly presented in the Old Testament as monotheism is in reality Trinitarian monotheism. It is the doctrine that there is only one being of God. But that being exists as three distinct, equal, divine persons simultaneously. Do we get it? So we see the difference. And so all of that has monumental repercussions because if you study all the religions of the world, and some of you may have taken, what do you call it, uh, the study of religion in college? What would you, comparative what? Comparative theology, religions, whatever. Did you study any of that? Anybody? Okay, you're going to study all these people. and Okay, Zoroastrianism. It says something about one God. It says something about a resurrection and whatever. But you notice that Zoroaster did not himself claim to be that very one God, Charles. I got it right. He didn't claim to be that one God, but he proclaimed or claimed to be teaching about that one God. Muhammad does not claim to be this one God. Buddha, etc. There's only one man on the earth 
who was ever claimed to be this one God. And so this morning, hopefully I will get it done in time. The Lord give me grace. Let's talk about the crescendo. The crescendo here. Remember the evidence in the Old Testament. We went through it last week. We saw that there is scriptural evidence in the Tanakh. What is the Tanakh? The Jewish understanding, a way of saying the Old Testament. I use Tanakh so we'll expand our understanding here. That the scriptural evidence in the Tanakh is for a mutual existence and interaction of two, at least two, of two divine persons. Remember that? Yahweh or the Lord. The Lord is this, the Lord that. that that's the word, Yahweh. Two distinct persons, Yahweh and the angel of the Lord. Why? Because they, they con converse with one another. Now, if this isn't so, then God is talking to himself. Peter, <clears throat> yes. How are you today? I am fine. Well, that's a problem. But in fact, God is really talking to himself, but not as just one person. Right, Jan? identifying in this being of God, there's something that no other religion has. Why? Because Christianity is the truth. And so Jesus is claiming to be the angel of the Lord. He's claiming to be the incarnate. You know what I mean by incarnate now, right? In the flesh. He is claiming to be the incarnate I am, the incarnate angel of the Lord who came into the world to glorify the Father. That was Jesus' primary purpose. Why did Jesus come into the world? Well, he came into the world to save sinners, right? He came into the world to uh, defeat sin, right, etc. But why? The primary purpose for Jesus coming into the world is to satisfy the Father's eternal purpose of having a people in whom and through whom his personal essential glory is manifested through his mutual fellowship with these people as he dwells in and with them. Do we see that? That's the purpose of God in creating the heavens and the earth. That's the essential purpose. Everything else is an outworking of that. So why did Jesus come to save sinners? Father, be glorified. Why did Jesus uh, do the miracles to demonstrate the Father's glory that is there and is coming in fullness? Why all of these things? The Father's glory. That is the essential purpose of God. And so Jesus, remember in John 17, 1, he starts this prayer. Remember what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? Why glorify me? That you may be glorified. You see the progression here. Verse 4, I have already glorified you on the earth. How? As the incarnate I am. Are we putting this together? 
Are we putting this together? Can you say a yes or no? I have glorified it. How has it glorified it? Steve, how has it glorified it? By being the incarnate I am. That's how he's glorified it. And all that he did and said was a revelation of, an expression of, a proof of, I am. He claims to be coexistent and co-equal with the Father, the living display of the Father's glory. The living vessel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be in God and not of us. John 14, 9. Remember when Jesus tells Philip. Philip says, hey, before you go, show us the Father. I've been with you this long, Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Has he visibly seen the Father, Anna Maria? No. He has seen the Father in the image of the Father in a man as the I am. So now the most important question is this. Well, that's great. How many of us believe God loves us? You can raise your hand. It's okay if you believe that. Sarah, do you believe that? How do you know? Where's the beef? Some of you are older remember that. Where's the beef? They had a hamburger and the old lady, you know, on Wendy's, just trying to show something about their hamburger. Where's the beef? You see eating somebody else's hamburger. This is a hamburger? Where's the proof? We cannot base our faith in Christ. We cannot base the validity of Christianity on anything except there is one essential proof. Because Jesus died on the cross, Patricia, Pat, had to make sure you got which one I'm talking to. Because Jesus died on the cross. Tiffany, that doesn't prove anything except he died on the cross. Right, John? Guys, right? Doesn't prove anything. When you are sharing with an unbeliever about the validity of your faith, you certainly really should and maybe even must, share the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in you having believed. You got that? But that's no proof. You could just be a nut. Right? Come on, come on. Are we with me today? Carrie, you could be goofy. You see, that doesn't prove a thing, Darlene. So you had an experience. Who cares? Jesus freak, Jesus freak, da-da-da-da-da-da. Where's the proof? The most essential, I think, my opinion, the most essential ingredient in sharing the gospel is never to begin sharing the gospel, Jesus loves you. I say, non it doesn't work. It's not right. The most essential reason to believe the gospel 
There's only one reason. It's true. Dale, where's the proof? Where is it, everyone? In the resurrection. Do we see that? Make sure we get this right because we're going to be, and we should be, challenged in this world. Young people back there, y'all going to be challenged in high school and college. You're going to be challenged as to the proof. And I can say all I want to. Well, look at the Bible and Jesus did that. Jesus. It doesn't mean a thing, Kay. Do we get that? doesn't mean a thing. doesn't mean diddly squat. Except it can be proven as best that things can be proven today. Is there any event that establishes the veracity of Jesus' audacious claims? Yes. Is Romans 1, 4 in your, Bible, uh, in your notes? Somebody say that out loud. What's the proof? Somebody read what he, Paul says by the Spirit. What does he say? That is one of the most significant verses that we need to know as believers. God announced and declared that this one who has been on earth and said, I am, who has been destroyed at the cross and buried, this one, God has said, is the proof. This is the proof that this is my son. I raised him from the dead. He has been declared with power through the resurrection. So let's this morning talk about what the resurrection proves. I'm going to try to go through this systematically and as I hate to say fast, but I want to move through it. And, and I just felt th there's so much more than what we have here. But let's at least see what the Lord has given us. The resurrection proves that indeed Jesus is the incarnate I am. In other words, Jesus is the very angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, self-existent with, co-equal with, possessing the very same divinity that Yahweh himself possesses. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't a part of this yet, but he is there. And this one who has existed forever has taken on a human body and a soul to declare in himself, to declare by himself the very nature and character of God the Father. Do we hear it? Do we see that? And how does he do it? We'll talk about that in a moment. So the resurrection proves, I'm going to just go through these. I think you have them all in your notes, bullet points or whatever. And, well, the resurrection proves first that the one being of God. Do you, do you see Deuteronomy 6, 4 there? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we've talked about what that means in other classes, and I don't want to go through all that today. One God, 
monotheism, who exists as a trinity of three divine persons. The resurrection proves that. It proves that God is a trinity. The resurrection proves that Jesus, as to his sonship, as to his personal divinity, not as to his physical person, is coexistent and co-equal with God the Father. Remember 1411 of John, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So when Jesus says, I am in the Father, he's not talking about his humanity. He's talking about his sonship as the I am. Because remember, the I am has taken to himself a human body and soul. So when people say, and I understand this, in fact, it's said a couple of times, Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. Well, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. If you're talking about holistically, this man in whom the son resides and even who is in his body, whatever, the body of Jesus has existed forever. Is that true? No, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the book in Matthew? So the son of God who is the I am, who is now speaking as I am in the body and soul, in the words of this man. He is self-existent with God. The resurrection proves that Jesus, as to his sonship, is distinct from the Father. Remember, John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He's distinct from the Father, yet he exists with the Father. He is as eternal as God the Father is. The resurrection proves as to Jesus that, sorry, that the Father's glory has now been made visible in Jesus, the exalted. In the, let me say it this way. The resurrection proves that God's glory has now been made visible in the exalted humanity of this man. Do you remember Matthew 28? Verse 18, what does Jesus say? All what authority has been given to me. Remember that? Well, the Son of God has always had, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, all authority. You do realize that, correct? Well, why is he saying it's been given if he's always had it? As to his exalted humanity now, all of the Father's authority has been now extended to and given to and deposited in the very humanity of this raised, exalted, ruling man. Amen? That's what that means. That the glory of God the Father is now manifested in the Son as expressed now in his exaltation of his rulership over heaven and earth. The resurrection, let me find my place again, sorry for getting lost, that proves that all the works of Jesus are the very works of the Father. Everything Jesus does 
is the Father working in him and with him and through him. And I want to make sure we get this next one. The resurrection proves that each divine persons, how many? How many divine persons are we? Are there in Godhead? Three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That each one is equally, and I should have said, and simultaneously involved in all the works of God. There's no such thing as God the Father does this, and then the Son does that, and then the Holy Spirit does that, independent of one another. The role of the Father is very clear and is made clear by him. The role of the Son is clear. The role of the Holy Spirit is clear. But what that means is, as the Holy Spirit is performing his role, as the Father is fulfilling his role, as the Son is doing his work, the other two persons of the Trinity are equally involved, yet at a diff- in a different role of that involvement. Do we get that? That there's no such thing as any num- one of the persons of God working unilaterally, in other words, by himself. No such thing. And I think Christians are pretty weak in this area. We are saved because and through Trinitarian monotheism. Resurrection proved that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 9, 10, 9, God the Father raised him from the dead. It proves that Jesus raised himself from the dead. I will raise up, remember, I will raise my body up. I will, you know, I will raise up my body. That the Holy Spirit raised up Jesus from the dead. Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Well, which one is it? Which one? It's all three. All three persons are simultaneously and forever involved in all the works of God. Genesis 1.1 is a proclamation that God, so it says, Bereshit bara Elohim which is a plural word for God. He is saying there, all three of us are doing this work. Simultaneously, but through particular roles. Right? We got that? There ain't no other religion like this. There are many religions that teach love one another. Great. Be kind to one another. Wonderful. Do this. There's nothing. This is the absolute unique religion. It is a theology, this Trinity theology, that is absolutely incapable of being really understood with the natural mind, comprehended. The best we can do is say a few things and experience the reality, correct? You can't go too far in the explanation. And so anything that the mind of a man or a woman or a bunch of people can conjure up, anything that can be produced philosophically, theologically, can be explained by somebody else, correct? Why can't anyone really get a hold of this? Because it's not from the mind of men or women. It's from the mind of God. And he has shared that with us. 
and given us, thankfully, at least a modicum of ability to comprehend the essentials of it, but not the real depth of it, not the real power of it as to what is really meant in its depth. It will be eternities upon eternities upon eternities that we will be ever learning, who are you, Lord? Who are you? We will never stop learning and experiencing and maturing in that revelation. Do you believe that? We will never know God fully. Why? Because to know God fully, you must be part of the Trinity. But we will always becoming more and more knowledgeable of this God as he continues to teach us in heaven itself forever. Amen. Isn't that good? Now, should you think, oh, Peter, you're going to the Holy Spirit speaks, period. The resurrection proves. I want to commend this set of verses to you. These are, this is a, a Christological section of Scripture. What does it mean? It's a section of scripture, scripture that emphasizes the Christology or the Christness of theology. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20 are absolutely astounding and incredible in all their ways. And then I've added second chapter 2, 9 through 10. And I want to make sure we get this. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossae church. He's writing this. He's dictating it. So at one level we can say, Paul teaches this. Paul tells us this. Is that correct? But is the information, is the revelation, you don't mean by indigenous, it's of me naturally. Is the revelation indigenous to me or to Paul? No. Paul is a vessel. So when we say Paul teaches this or John says that or the Bible does the other thing, what grieves me really is that we almost never say the Holy Spirit does it through Moses, Paul, Joshua. It's just, I'd much rather, not every time to say, you know what? Listen to what God himself by his spirit speaks through this apostle. Then when I hear that flow, it causes me to realize, oh, wow. That's right. That's not just Paul. Because see, I can argue with Paul. I can tell you all the things wrong with Paul. I can tell you he's so connected with his culture that today we're not the same culture. So don't have to believe everything Paul says, don't you see? But as believers, let's make sure that we are regularly identifying the very source and heart and root of all of this revelation. And who is it? God the Father by the Holy Spirit having been purchased by the Son, the Trinity. So let's see what the Holy Spirit is telling us this morning. The Holy Spirit proves these verses are true. Verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we talked about that firstborn before. We won't go into that. It means the highest rank. It doesn't mean birth in a natural sense. It means given the highest rank. 
Verse 16, the whole resurrection proves what? For by him, by whom? Hmm. Jesus. But as to his humanity? No. Jesus, as to his eternal sonship. We see what's happening here. This one who dwelt in this man, Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. This is the one whom we're talking about in verse 16, for instance. And for him, by him, all things were created. What is that a quote from? John 1, 2. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and what? For him. Why does the son function in the role as the creator? To glorify the father. For him. For him himself. Because in him, when he is being glorified and manifested as glorified, the son is being manifested. Let me take a little time off. I've said this so many times, but it's so true. A parent's glory when his child is being glorified, can I use it that way, is manifested in the approbation, the wonderful things about that child. So when my daughter in the eighth grade received that award, she was something. But this old man made sure everybody knew. My daughter, when I yell, whoo, that's my daughter. I've said this before. The whole room knew something. The whole room knew that there was a man there who was, if you would, I'll use the term, glorified in the glory of his daughter. That's right. The Father is glorified this way by the Son. Resurrection proves that this one who is the I am is before all things and in him all things hold together. Resurrection proves he's also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in himself, he may have himself the preeminence in all things. Not that she have first place. You see, if he has first place, something else has second place. Huh? I won first place. What are you going to ask? Who won what? Second place. Jesus is the first place, the second place, the third place, the fourth place. It's not Jesus is the first place. and Man, I'm putting first here. But in these areas... No, the preeminence in all things. He is all and in all. That's what that means. For means as the word guard, G-A-R in the Greek means as a result. As a result, it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity. How much? All the fullness of deity to dwell or to be manifested in his humanity. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether they be things on earth or things in the heaven. Then second chapter, verses 9 and 10. 
when I say, listen, Paul can't constrain himself. I, yes, that's true, but why? Because the Holy Spirit is giving this to Paul in a way that Paul can't constrain himself. Got it? Do we see that? Do we see that? It's not about Paul. It's about the Holy Spirit and Paul's response. For, as a result, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. And in him you have been made complete and he is ahead of all rule and authority. I mean, Paul can't get over this. He can't get over it. The question is, is this how we feel? You know, we're in a worship series. It's been a good series. It's such a needed series. The more I know two things about Jesus through the study of the word, if I'm being taught by the Holy Spirit and receiving it in faith, I am learning Jesus. You learn about in order to what? Learn, you see. And the more I'm learning Jesus, the greater my worship. The greater my worship. Correct? You want to be a worshiper of God? Learn Jesus. Sit and think. Let your mind be the avenue of the Holy Spirit to take you through the various whatever of life and remind you who this one is and what he's done. Sit and enjoy his presence and let him commune with you, communicating himself to you as displayed in the resurrection of this man from the dead. That's when you're going to experience the greatest worship. The significance of the resurrection is stated in Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Remember, he, Jesus submitted himself unto death, even death on the cross. Remember that? So what's the significance of the resurrection? Verses 9 through 11. Wherefore also God... Wherefore also God, God the Father, has what? Exalted this one who is the I Am. Exalted him as to his humanity to declare. This is my son revealed in the humanity of Jesus who is the I Am. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him. Remember the man. We're talking about the resurrection of a man here. But more than a man. And has given him what? A name, go ahead, come on. A name which is above, y'all can read it with me. A name which is above what? Every name. That at the name of Jesus, every, now that means, that means even demons one day will bow their knees and confess it. That every what? At the name of Jesus, every what? Knee will what? Bow. And every tongue will confess Confess what? The things in the heavens, things on the earth, and things below the earth. And what are they going to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? For what purpose? What's the ultimate reason? For the glory of God the Father. Are we getting it? Do we see this? This is it. 
So he's proclaimed himself. God has proclaimed his Trinitarian existence and revelation in the name Jesus Christ as Lord, or the name the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ and the Lord, those three. So everything about God that he desires us to know, every purpose of him which he reveals to us, every bit of the method or means through which he accomplishes that purpose, everything is wrapped up and gathered into and stated and revealed in this title. Jesus Christ the Lord. Or if you see it, Lord Jesus Christ. Or Jesus Christ is Lord. Those three together. Doesn't mean you have to say that all the time. But every time in the New Testament, once we get into Acts and moving forward, every time the name of Jesus is used or the word Christ is used or the Lord word Lord is used, independent of the other three or, or just two of them, Jesus Christ. It always means essentially Jesus Christ the Lord. There is this triune title. Even in his title, there's a trinity, isn't there? So Jesus is the incarnational name of the Son of God. You see in your notes, do we see there the word Yah, I am? Word Hosea mean I am salvation. Christ is the incarnational ministry of the Son as the I am to deliver his people. And Lord is the incarnational name that identifies Jesus as the incarnation of the Son of God, the I Am. That's what's in that name. You see, this is why Jesus said in John 8, 24. I said 8, 26 before, 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Someone said somewhere. If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord or Jesus Christ is Lord. And you believe in your heart what? That what? God has raised him from the dead. That's a revelation of your salvation. You can't believe it from the heart. Unless God has given it to you to believe by giving you a new heart. We're not talking about the old heart of stone before you're saved. So you'll call upon the name of the Lord. I'll call upon the name of the Lord so I can be saved. Are you kidding? No one has the heart indigenous to him with which you can call upon the name of the Lord. It's stone. It's dead, Joe. Dead. The only way you can call upon the name of the Lord is the Holy Spirit calls upon you and gives you understanding and revelation. So our salvation is not the result so much of my asking Jesus to save me or to come into my heart. You see, I'm not asking Jesus to come into my heart. I am receiving the heart that Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, gives me so that I can receive him as Lord. Right? I think we have a little backward, but I think and I know that God obviously honors that. I think it's just a way of saying things that is a little little inaccurate, but I say that knowing that many other pastors will use it. And so please let's not throw darts at them, but let's understand what's really going on here is my response and need of a Savior 
is because I have been moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And I am receiving this Savior. I am not asking for a present. I am receiving a present. Which I do not deserve and have not asked for. Right? Next week we'll begin to get into the seven I am's with a predicate. Beginning with I am in John chapter 6. What? The bread of life. Thank you so much for being here.